On January 29th, 2012, halfway between Brooks's hometown of Bradenton and my hometown of Tallahassee, Florida, the worst car wreck in Florida history took place. And when rescuers first arrived, they couldn't even see their own hands through the smog fog, smoke fog mix. Um, they could only listen for screams and moans to try to find victims in the wreckage that was spread over a mile. Um, that week, this is what was on the news. Other reports from the crime scene, and really it ended up being such because it wasn't intentionally set fire, uh, reported that, that people had hopped out of their cars and were actually running the other way on the interstate, waving their arms hysterically, trying to get people to slow down because it was that dangerous. And, and can you imagine just how awful it would be to hear and not know whether you were the one that was going to go next. One report, a guy said that a friend of his called uh, and said, hey, we just got through this fog, dense fog area. You need to pull off the road. You'd hope that that would be our instinct, that when we knew others were in danger, we would go to whatever lengths we could to let them know. Today, in our second-to-last sermon in this Jonah series, I'd like to look at an aspect of the nature of the Christian church's mission. It is the proclamation of salvation from judgment. I would like to describe in Scripture an eternal death that will be faced by many if they don't slam on the brakes and turn to Jesus. And it is the church's job to prepare ourselves to give an answer for the hope we have and to pray for the opportunity we might have to wave our arms and encourage someone to stop and plead with them to avoid what is a certain calamity for those who choose to reject Christ and pay for their sins on their own. The scriptures say that people are lost. And I recognize in our Western culture that this is a tough sell uh, for a lot of people, that is a sticking point. If you have to have a Christianity where you're broken and fallen and weak, right away that would be countercultural. It would be very different than what psychologists and a lot of pop help people would tell you is the means to great health in life. And yet the scriptures are replete with references, including God's characterization of the Ninevites in today's text. In verse 11, this is how he describes this crowd. There are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. And when you, when you say it like that, it's like, okay, what, uh, what's another way to say this? Have you ever observed our culture and thought, that is backwards, that is upside down, that is not the way it's supposed to be? And, and this is effectively how God would describe the Ninevites, that these are a group of people who, morally speaking, think right is left and left is right or right is wrong and wrong is right now I'll go back to some history and uh, I rarely reference my academic study because I, I just don't feel it's uh, germane but uh, part of my dissertation process was doing a historiography of the 20th century evangelical church and one of the things that you have to recognize in studying the patterns of the Bible-believing church in America is that after losing culture wars 
in the early part of the 20th century and feeling a sense of marginalization from the culture at large, what they determined to do was to kind of sort of cordon themselves off. They barricaded themselves in what they called a, the world is coming to an end, so let's save as many people as we can and get out of here as quickly as possible. The, all, the, the, the it's all going to burn philosophy of evangelism. And so basically, they abandoned the, the part of the Christian mission that is reaching out to the culture at large and being involved in renewing of the cities and the cultures in which we live. They abandoned the work of the church, largely for this notion that heaven is our home and earth, we're just supposed to abandon it and, and tell as many people about Jesus as possible so they won't go to hell. That was what most people I know and most of the scholars that I trust, uh, an overcorrection to what was happening in the quote-unquote progressive church, which was an elimination of all things related to eternal judgment and uh, an atoning sacrifice that would have been required for us. So there was a progressive liberal wing of the Protestant church that said, it's really all about social action and social justice. I, I am thankful that in the 21st century, there are churches that now can say with confidence that it's two sides of the same coin. There is a part of the work of the church that is reaching the culture and renewing things for Christ, but even that is designed to point people to Christ and his love for us. And salvation is no small component of the Christian message. Reaching out to others and reaching them with the gospel is what the Bible says is a primary mission parameter this is what we're called to. But it's not just about saving people from hell. It's saving really us from ourselves and making all things new so that Jesus would be seen in all. As we conclude, Jonah, if you were studying along with us, you might actually find yourself leaning into the next book of the Old Testament, which is the minor prophet Micah. And he's most well-known in our culture for his proclamation in Micah 6.8 that says, he has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And, and so today, as we look at this aspect of the church's mission, um, I have a couple of thoughts under the banner of the message titled The Lost and the Lord's Love. And my first thought this morning from our text is that lost souls need saving. Lost souls need saving. As a young Christian, I started going to a church, and I remember distinctly that one of the emphases of this particular youth group was telling people who didn't know about Jesus that they need Jesus, that they were lost without Jesus. And they used to have this little thing written over the doorway in front of this youth center, and it said, Remember the lost. And, and there was a real emphasis that was really healthy in all of that. In the text here in Jonah 4, 5 through 6, what we see is Jonah not just not remembering the lost, but not actually caring for the lost. I read from verse 5, it says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat, out under, the, uh, sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head 
to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. If you can see the picture, it says Jonah comes and he proclaims this message, and the king and the people actually do repent, but Jonah is still hoping that it's a faux repentance. And so he sits up, he sets up on a hill, a booth. Uh, it's really a shelter. Uh, and, and the only means of the shade would have been this tree over the top of him. If you can imagine, Jonah is hoping that the city's actually going to be judged. It seems that there's been a determination. The king calls for a fast and repentance, but Jonah is still hoping that there is going to be this moment where God just says, you know what, I changed my mind, toast. And, and so he gets like a luxury box seat to the end of the world. This is kind of sort of what he's decided to do. And it's, it's really twisted, but God takes this opportunity to show Jonah and he often does this for us. He'll take the opportunity in front of us to show what's really wrong in our souls. Uh, the text says, when we move on from verse 6 to 7 and 8, that it, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it died. And the next morning, he sent a scorching east wind and a sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And in verse 8 of Jonah 4, Jonah says... It is better for me to die than to live. This is how sad he is over the death of his plant and shade. He has now been made uncomfortable. And, and if you really want to understand something uh, geographically speaking uh, in the text, and that is something we get really easily here in Southern California, when it talks about the east winds coming up, uh, that is akin to what we face here when we get the Santa Anas. When they blow in from the desert, it's stinking hot. You know what I mean? That's when forest fires get going. In the summer, July, August, and you get that hot wind in the middle of the day. Have you ever been out in the Inland Empire on the wrong side of the cow farms? When that heat comes, oh, it's brutal. You know? And, and so we know what it means to have the uh, winds come from the east. This is how it would be in the Middle East as well. To the east of Nineveh, to the east of Jerusalem, is a vast desert. And when those winds come blowing across the plain, it's an uncomfortable place. And so here's Jonah set up his little camp to watch the destruction of a city that he just proclaimed the gospel to, effectively. God wants him to see something really important about his lack of compassion. But before we take a look at that, I think it, we cannot avoid what is implied even in the metaphor God was going to bring judgment to Nineveh. We don't like talking about eternal judgment in our culture. It's, it can get uncomfortable because you know that oftentimes that means that people you know might never receive Christ and then spend eternity apart from him. For some, that is a deal breaker when it comes to embracing Christianity because they think, what about people I know and love who've never received Christ? You start talking about people who don't receive Christ's forgiveness for their sins, having to pay for their own sins for eternity. People in our culture will just say, you are nuts and a bigot and so many other things that you could get characterized as. You just get, you just get called crazy, but you cannot avoid that in the scripture there seems to be no contradiction between the concepts of God's justice and judgment 
and his love. You see, God would destroy the city, but he wanted to save it. And his mercy is just made that much more great when people who deserve his judgment get grace. Jonah had no right to want the people to be judged, but God had every right to judge them. Eternal separation from God, or what the Bible calls hell, is not a subject on which scripture is silent. Jesus was explicit about the present state of mankind's soul apart from the grace and mercy offered through his life. In John 3, a section of scripture we're familiar with because John 3.16 became bumper sticker material for so many of us growing up. But verse 18 is really instructive to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So he did come so that people who believed wouldn't perish. So the judgment is there too. God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is a critical point of Christian theology. If you're still wrestling through what you believe about God and Jesus, this is going to be one of those crossroads for you. You are going to be forced, and you are, just by being a thinker, forced to define the purpose of the historically verifiable death of Jesus of Nazareth. Was he dying because he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist said? Was that the purpose of his death? Because if it was, that has implications. It means that our sin is gross enough that the perfect Son of God needed to be sacrificed for us. It means that apart from that sacrifice, judgment akin to what happened to Nineveh would be happening to us. Or is Jesus just a martyr? Is he somebody that was a social justice pioneer who was teaching others to love and was largely misunderstood? Because that too has implications. That means that the question of sin and how that's dealt with and what we see in the character of God, those things are now in question. What Jesus said was that he came to die and to save us from condemnation. We are presently in a state of guilt. Every human being placing faith in Jesus as our substitute frees us from spending eternity paying for our sins. And friends, this may seem like an obvious statement, but eternity lasts forever. This is a big deal. People are on a highway of life and, and heading into a crash, and we're supposed to be the ones waving our arms saying, you don't have to go down there. Don't. Jesus wants to protect you. Jesus wants to save you. Stop. Sinclair Ferguson says this, the Christian who loses his taste for what God is doing must look to see who as well as what is dulling his palate. Last week I got an early birthday present as Carolyn and I uh, went to see Billy Joel in concert. Um, I'm a big Billy Joel fan. I have to tell you, I didn't, uh, this, I, this picture is not from my seats. All right, this is uh, Billy Joel. There we go. 
how are we doing back there, but excellent. This is not my seat. Uh, my seat is um, way up here. All right, that's where I sat. Um, nonetheless, it was a fun concert. Uh, I have always been a fan of Billy's music, um, uh, but the lyrics to Only the Good Die Young have understandably always made me uneasy, if you're not familiar with this tune in it. He belittles his Catholic girlfriend's faith in a frustrated bid to get her to sleep with him. And I think I was more offended by this as a father than I was as a Christian. Uh, because once you have a teenage daughter, you're on the lookout for these kind of creeps. And so I was happy he didn't sing it at the concert, but I did not leave completely undisturbed because halfway through the show, uh, Mr. Joel called uh, Axel Rose from Guns N' Roses out onto the stage. And together they sang um, a rousing rendition of a classic ACDC rock anthem. I'm a huge rock and roll guy and have never been someone who made a distinction between secular and sacred. I think people, regardless of whether they know Jesus, can make beautiful art that we all can enjoy. And 99% uh, of the music that Billy Joel makes, I would say, is just really wonderful and encouraging to me in a lot of ways. Um, but... I have to tell you, as a minister and a Christian in my city, I was unprepared for how disturbed I was by watching 50,000 of my fellow Angelinas sing in unison that they were on a highway to hell. I mean, when you hear a, a, stadium, a Dodger Stadium full of people singing that song, it takes your breath away in a bad way if you're a Christian because you realize they don't really realize, most of them probably, what they're singing. And yet the lyrics are very clear. I mean, I have never been one who wanted to talk about rock music and go, it's just evil, but that song is just evil. I mean, they're going to tell you, it's, it's just awful. It is a it bold, in-your-face, I am not going to listen to God, I'm on a highway to hell, and nobody's going to stop me. And in this climate where pop culture makes the devil into a cartoon and music is written about eternity that presumes all will enter heaven or playfully mock the idea of hell in the first place it is easy to be lulled into inaction or frightened to say anything for fear of others mocking you but you can't avoid the stark reality of what pop musicians might say about eternity and what the scriptures say. Billy Joel wrote in Only the Good Die Young, they say there's a heaven for those who await. Uh, some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints because sinners are much more fun. I'll give him that. Sinful people, we all are. You know, when we're broken and real about it, we're a lot more enjoyable to be with. But his exegesis of the biblical text is poor because in this life sinners laugh and saints cry but in the next it will be juxtaposed otherwise in eternity people who don't know Jesus will be crying the Bible calls it wailing and gnashing of teeth a regret for choosing to pay for your sins on your own you have an eternity of that waiting whereas Jesus offers the joy of unconditional love and grace. Judgment from God is deserved, friends. His love is not deserved. 
We are not entitled to it. His grace, which is by definition unmerited favor, is given freely. If we didn't rightly deserve his displeasure, we couldn't know the joy of his unconditional love. Another way to say it would be you can't know amazing grace unless you know amazing salvation. Unless you're aware that you don't really deserve it. That's what makes it amazing. John Owen, the great Puritan, said, if we deserved God's love, we would not value it so highly. Things which are owed to us are seldom gratefully received. Lost souls need saving. But I will say with clarity that the other side of that coin is very clear. Eternal life doesn't begin once you die. It begins now. What Jesus is offering to people is not just an avoidance of eternal death. And there are plenty of quote-unquote Christians, whether they're nominal Christians or just faux Christians, that have this notion that they could walk forward at a church service, you know, sign a card or get dunked in a tank and, and get their hell insurance. You know, basically they're prevented from going to hell forever and then they never interact with God ever again, never go to church, never find comfort in the company of other Christians. They, there's no pursuit of God in their life, but they feel like they got their like, get out of hell free card and that's what the Christian life is about and it isn't. Uh, the genuine believer, yes, is saved from eternal judgment, but he, is, he or she is saved to begin a life of, of, of fullness in Christ now. It's what we begin to experience in this world. While it is true that lost souls need saving, the process that begins once one becomes a believer is a process of healing and restoration. And that's why I would say the flip side of the coin is that lost souls need salving. We need salving. We, we need the Lord's presence and grace through others and through his means of grace to begin to do a healing work in us now. We're desperate for that. We're longing for that. We're longing for love. We're looking for it in all the wrong places. And in Jonah 4, 10 and 11, the Lord begins to chastise. He begins to correct. He begins to rebuke Jonah for his lack of compassion for people who are lost. Because to lack compassion for them communicates, especially if you're identified as one of his followers, communicates that God doesn't care about them. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. Verse 10 of our passage says, And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. I mean, God is saying to Jonah that you care about plants more than you care about animals, more than you care about humans. And incidentally, this verse is part of my work to prove that all dogs go to heaven. See, God clearly loves the animals. Or at least dogs. Cats, on the other hand, I'm not sure about. They might be on their own little kitty highway to hell. Who knows? But I can speak for the dogs. God loves them. In all seriousness, uh, God was pointing out to Jonah that if he could care so deeply about a vine, it is not only right, but it is proper that God would care about people. God had pity on a people that he compassionately saw as lost. 
but not unredeemable. He loves them to such a degree that it bothers him that they are confused, truly morally and spiritually disoriented. This is how he views all of humanity. Isaiah 53 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Here in Pasadena, we see our fair share of homeless people, especially here around the church. And every so often, one of these folks will be so disoriented, either through mental illness or drug use, that you realize they don't know where they are. And that often they don't even know who they are. And this is how God the Father describes the lost in Nineveh and those without him. That they don't really get who they are. They don't see their value as a unique creation of God. They, they've lost all bearings. They, they don't know their right hand from their left. They're confused. And he loves them. It's how Jesus saw his people in Jerusalem. In Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus' compassion for people led him to do all that he did, including dying for our sins. And whether we're helping the homeless or simply being kind to those who need it, Jesus commanded us to love each other because in so doing, it shows his love to others, lets the world know that we're his disciples, and lets them know that he cares. We show compassion Presumably, because we're experiencing compassion from God, we're experiencing continual grace from God, and that is what fuels us to give that and extend that to others. We do believe that Jesus died for your sins to purchase eternal life for you, but that life begins the moment you trust Christ to save you, and you enter into a relationship with him, one that will never end, and the healing process of being restored to intimacy and proximity to God begins, and his work to bring a salve to our aching souls begins to take root in us as we deepen our understanding of his grace. John Owen describes it like this. God's love is like the heavens when full of rain. They pour down showers to make the earth fruitful. The Father's love is like a bubbling spring or a sparkling fountain, always pouring out water. The Father's love powerfully beautifies the object on which his love is poured, infusing into and creating goodness in the person's loved. Last summer, uh, our home, we live in the hills of Duarte, and we had to evacuate because there was a big fire. And you can now look at the mountains above our house and see the scorched earth. Uh, it's a little browner these days, but months ago when the rains were heavy, you could see where green was starting to take root again in areas that were previously just devastated by flames. This is how God would describe his love, that we are this parched land incapable of producing any kind of fruit or vegetation. He wants to just deluge the ground 
soak it with his unconditional love. And out of that type of bath and his grace, we start to live for him and love others and understand the world clearly. Went to a seminar this past week at Fuller Seminary. One of our people, J.T. Turner, is a postdoc student at Fuller, and he and some others are researching the area of analytical theology. And they had a really interesting kind of dissection of God's love in the midst of this, which just touched me in a way. I thought I'd share it with you. They would share that God's love toward us is, is expressed practically in two distinct ways. Uh, one is through his desire for our good, and the other is through his desire for fellowship with us. And when you think about your own relationships, the people you love, you, you generally want good things for them, and the people who you really love, you, you want to be with them. His love is seen in his compassionate provision for all that we truly need. His life, his love is also seen in his desire for present-day communion with us. And it's these realities that make his love something that we can begin to experience now. A growing comprehension of his love provides a balm for our broken hearts. Experiencing his grace is a salve for our wounded souls. And the primary means by which we experience this is through each other. Christians are the means by which God is going to primarily share his love and grace in this world. Yes, there is a mystical component to this that you experience through the exercises of the means of grace of prayer and meditation on the word and quiet soul work. All of those things critical to spiritual growth and understanding. But we were never made to grow as Christians alone. If you're going the Lone Ranger kind of Christian, you're going to die because you weren't made for that. The means by which you are supposed to see grace and compassion and care extended is through your relationships with other Christians. Think about the responsibility that you carry in demonstrating God's love just for people around you, let alone for the lost. You, you've, got a, you've got an opportunity to be the vehicle, the means by which God impacts others. They'll see him in you. He, they experience his grace through Christians. Jesus said, they'll know you are my disciples if you love one another. The culture will know that God cares when our church is involved in its renewal. We are called to, to a mission that includes both saving and salving souls for the glory of Jesus. So let's pray we do that well. Father, we can leave these types of messages and grit our teeth and say we're going to do better, but really today what we need is you. Um, we need an encounter with you, a, a walk with you, a life in you that is so real that the byproduct of it is loving others well. Um, Father, we can't produce in ourselves enough love for people to risk whatever it would cost us to share with them the good news. 
that would only come as we understood how kind you've been to us, how loving you've been to us. I pray this morning that you would enable many of us who have been resistant to allow you to love us unconditionally, that you'd give us freedom and grace today to do that. Father, there is something that binds the hearts of people, and I, I have to believe it's our enemy who doesn't want us to know and be at rest with you in your unconditional love. But until we know it, Lord, it's very hard to replicate it. So our step of repentance to be a people of mission and faithful to your call to proclaim salvation, to proclaim great healing for the soul, our step of repentance towards this mission is a call to you to bring new life to our walk with you. Bring fresh wind into our souls that we would just want to hear from you. We need you, Jesus. Without you, we can do nothing. So would you empower us to know and love you by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name.